That's right. It's Cosmic Dragon episode 26. I'm your host, Sean Grigsby. Today, we are talking to Todd A. Thompson. But before we jump into that, since I have you, I want to talk about my books. I have Smoke Eaters out. Smoke Eaters is about firefighters versus dragons in the future. Daughters of Forgotten Light is also out. That is about all women motorcycle gangs in space. Both of those are available from Angry Robot Books, which is distributed by Penguin Random House, which means that you can buy it anywhere books are sold. Yes, of course, Amazon, but also Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, Target, Walmart, everywhere, Indiegogo. Check it out. The sequel to Smoke Eaters is called Ash Kickers, and that's coming out this summer, July 9th. But enough about me. Let's jump into our interview with Tade Thompson. To set the record straight for everyone listening out there, it's not Tade Thompson, it's Tade Thompson, correct? That is correct, although I only care how you spell it. <laughs> as long as it's right, then, then we're good, because that's what makes the checks clear. <laughs> Very good. Uh, th- people do that to me all the time. They always forget the second G in my last name, and they always say Grisby, and it's that's not it. So, uh, and I've been calling you Tade for years, and I forget who exactly corrected me on it. Uh, it was uh, Alan from uh, Alan and Jeremy versus Sci-Fi. Yeah, I love those guys. <clears throat> yeah, they're awesome. And did did you meet uh, Alan at the Nebulas? No, I didn't. But we're hoping we're kind of hoping to meet you know in Worldcon this in Dublin, hoping oh, awesome. to meet them in. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of, the Hugo nominations have opened today as of this recording, and uh, you've gotten a lot of attention for Rosewater. Uh, so oh, what can you tell us excellent. about the book? Uh, what can I say about the book? It is, it is my, it's my love letter to genre, let's put it that way. Um, it comes from reading a lot of CIA, a lot of declassified CIA documents. It comes from... My, you know, my love of science fiction, it comes from reading a lot of conspiracy theories and, you know, about Yuri Geller, about mind control and mind reading and, and the CIA's links with that and all kinds of stuff, really. All kinds of stuff. Um, MK Ultra? All of that. MK, MK Ultra and MK Delta. Um, oh, wow. Many, many people know about MK Ultra. They don't know about MK Delta. So MK Ultra was the domestic... Um, experimentation. MK Delta was the overseas wing of that. Ah. So all the stuff that they did in Europe. I don't know if you heard if you heard about the mind control experiments with the bread contaminated wheat, um, which they experimented on one particular town, and there was a it was kind of like a mass hallucinosis in that single town. Um, the stuff they did in Africa, there are all kinds of places. So yeah, so it's not just MK Ultra; it's also MK Delta. Wow. That's, no, I did not know about that. Yeah, it's well. You see, when you get it's it's like a rabbit hole. <laughs> when you get deep <laughs> into conspiracy theories, you you come across all kinds of stuff. You know, different ways in which you know. I like now, like decades later, you're like, who thought this was a good idea? You know, you ask yourself, <laughs> why did they think this was a good idea? You know, but they did, and they did it, and it was so weird, so so weird. They really, really wanted to beat the communists. Yeah, they, they did, <laughs> and and the communists. I mean, they had that. You see, part of it, I think, was also psyops because I think the Soviet Union was also putting out a lot of weird propaganda. Like they had someone called Nina Kulagina, who was supposed to be able to stop the heart of a frog with her mind. You know, um, <laughs> they, 
they had you know so i'm betting that somebody was just coming up with all of this stuff and then sending it out you know as a leak quote unquote and the americans like oh my god there must be you know people must have psychic activities we had better go and round up our own guys as well and so they started their own experiments it was it was crazy it was weird (laughs) and i've always wondered so all of that stuff was all kind of percolating in my head and then i think about what say again Oh no! Go ahead. Say again. What did you say? I, no, you you were you were doing fine. I think we might have a lag there, but um, what, what were uh, you talking about in in relation to Rosewater? Yes, yes. We're still we're still talking about Rosewater. So what happened is all that was percolating in my head, and then in 2011 I read a news story about these um, co-joined twins where they were joined by a strip of brain tissue, oh, wow. and and they could actually hear each other's thoughts. And if you gave one of them food, the other one could taste the food. Mm. Um, you know, so I listened to that and I just I just thought, okay, what if that were the basis of telepathy in a book? And then I kind of started ruminating over it from there. And really that was the that was the very first kernel that turned into rosewaters. Well, like, okay, let's talk about telepathy, you know. So there could be these these really tiny bands of tissue connecting different people's brains, connecting everybody's brains. And then I asked myself, okay, well, well why? Why would that be happening? I said, well, actually, it was aliens. So it kind of <laughs> grew from there. <laughs> That's fantastic. It grew from there, you know. And the sequel is going to be called Rosewater Insurrection, and that comes out in 2019. Have you have a, a solid date for release yet? Yeah, I believe it's the 19th of March. It's coming out in the, in the 19th of March or so, at least in America. It might be sooner, it might be later, but that's the, that's the date that I have. Um, I'm not entirely sure about the UK's date, but all I know is that it's going to be the third week of March, the second or the third week of March. There'll be a, you know it'll be out. That will be for um, the Rosewater Insurrection, and the final chapter might be coming out later this year as well. It might be September which is the Rosewater Redemption. Awesome. You know, so it's a busy year. And you also have a sequel to The Murders of Molly Southbourne as well. I do. That's called The Survival of Molly Southbourne, and that's coming out in July. Are both of these from I, the same publisher? Um, no. So um, Tor, Tor.com, is a publisher of um, the Molly Southbourne books, and Orbit is the publisher of the Rosewater books. Fantastic. Well, yeah, you have so, a very busy schedule. <laughs> Do you write full time? Is this your full time job? No, I don't write full time. I work in a hospital. I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a doctor. I work in the hospital. Um, I do my day job, then I come home and I kiss my family, and then I write for the rest of the time. I just don't sleep at all. <laughs> That's the trick, right? That's the key. That is the trick. That's yeah, that awesome. Trick. Uh, so, what what does your uh, writing routine look like? Uh, okay, so bear in mind that I embrace flexibility as a strategy, but generally speaking, I will wake up early and I'll write for about an hour. Then I would go to work and do all that stuff, and then I'll come back and I will revise for an hour. So I do new stuff in the morning, and I do um, old stuff that I want to revise in the evening. Um, that works better for me because in the morning, fewer distractions, there's, there's less of a drag on your attention when everybody else is asleep right. and 
my brain is still fresh so it's easier for me to 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 manipulate new ideas at that time of the day and in the evening i'm slightly you know i'm slightly more tired so that's it's better for me to look for mistakes and stuff i've already written and and try and make it a lot more coherent that kind of thing yeah it requires less brain power Mm -hmm. well yeah or a different kind of brain power that you can do when you're tired right um and that's that's really that is the general outline of how i write but one of the one of the i guess one of the things about writing in a semi-pro or pro way is you've got to be reliable to the publishers and to the reviewers and to people and to people who do interviews you know like you and everything so you have to be reliable so one of the things that i do is i may i continue my rhythm my routine as long as i don't have a deadline then when i have a deadline i i work only on whatever i need to get done until that's done and then i return to my routine so what that does is it it makes me one i always i pretty much always get my work in on time i if i'm asked to write an essay for example i was asked to write an article today which uh, the deadline is sometime in february i just basically dropped everything i was doing and i finished it about an hour ago oh wow so it's not hanging over my head right um that's that's kind of just that's my time management strategy really it's more like okay look if some if somebody is waiting for something make get it done and give it to them that's that's part of my strategy so um i don't i don't let anything hang over my head for very long at all i just i make sure that okay if i have to do something i do it and then i continue my you know with my with my strategy i use i use my calendar a lot i schedule revision of fiction i basically when i finish the first draft i immediately go to my calendar and i i kind of lock down the date that i'm going to start revisions for that particular work so on any given day i can tell you what i will be working on that's fantastic that's that's a very very good strategy uh, from what i'm hearing well if you if you don't have time and if you have kids then you need (laughs) you You need need a a strategy yeah very true I, the only hours you have are before they before they before they wake up in the morning and after they've gone to bed in the evening. Those are your only relatively free times. Yes, you know, that's all. That's all you've got. So you have to you have to be a bit regimented about how you get it done. Very good. I also saw that uh, you had a story in the new Amazing Stories magazine, which just came back, and uh, you were in the very special WorldCon '76 issue. So how did how did yes. that, how did that work out? How did you get in touch with them? Uh, they got in touch with me, I believe. They got in touch with me, or rather, they got in touch with my agent. I think I'm trying to remember now. Um, either they contacted me directly, or they contacted me through my agent. And it it was serendipitous because I had a story ready just at that time, so I was able to just give one, and that's that's how that happened. That's awesome. I, I have a story uh, with amazing stories coming out sometime in the next month or two um and i love that they do the illustrations of each author and that that's awesome and uh it's it's the they're first pretty, they're pretty cool aren't they i mean like you know they're, they're really they're just really cool yes very you know? cool. there is something about amazing stories that harkens back to the golden age yes you know it it, it kind of makes you feel like part of a long history of science fiction writers yes very much so uh, Ray Bradbury, Isaac Asimov, Ursula K. Le Guin, all, all of those people. 
Yes. I, I'm very, very happy uh, and happy that I have the, the copy right here next to me, actually. <laughs> and I think oh, they did a, a, an author spotlight on you uh, is what it was. Uh, you mentioned your agent. Who are you represented by? Um, so I'm represented by Alexander Cochran from C&W Agency, which is a part of Curtis Brown. Oh, very good. Yes, Cur- Curtis Brown. Uh, I believe they also represent uh, Richard Codry. Um, yeah. uh, Ginger represents him. Uh, so what what have you have? Uh, we talked about the the books you have out, some of them anyway, and ones coming out. What is a what's a secret project you might be able to tell us about that you're working on right now? <laughs> okay, um, I don't know how much of it I can talk about. Okay, so what I'm writing right now. After, you know, when I finished Rosewater, because I think I finished the writing on Rosewater about November 2018. So, I kind of need to purge my brain of of that world and those characters. So, what I'm writing right now is more along, it's more like a fantasy story, but it's more folklore than traditional fantasy. But, again, it's also in... It's also in contemporary London at the same time as being in the distant past. Okay. So it is kind of sort of mythology, folklore, urban type fantasy. Very nice. Um, And left to me, it, it will be a standalone, mostly because, you know, well, I need to, I need to see that there could, there could possibly be more stories in the world. But for me, I just want to do, I want to do one large standalone book, you know, and just, you know, something that is just complete in of itself right now. Um, And this is what I'll probably be working on for the rest of this year and probably parts of next year. And I I can't say I'm really enjoying it. I really am. Yeah. You know, so that's, that's, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm, that's what I'm doing right now. Um, in terms of what I'm revising, I've got a short story about a, uh, how am I going to explain this? It's a, it's a traveling prison. Ah. Um, it is a, it's a, it's, that sounds kind of like daughters, but not really. (laughs) Oh no, no, it's not like daughters. When I say traveling prison, I actually mean the building is traveling. Okay. So it's like uh, mortal engines, but they're all prisons. Uh, well, That's it's not probably even a rough like, way to say it, but yeah, but it's not even like mortal engines because mortal engines, at least you've got like these gigantic machinery that is, you know, that, you know, the cities are on machinery and the machinery, you know, they're like tanks and they're moving. Right. Right. That's mortal. Engines. This is actually the building with no machinery is constantly. So imagine that. Okay. Let's say imagine that it's traveling from North to West. Uh, sorry, from North to South. Okay. So in the south side of the building there are people who are actively building the building and in the north side people are destroying it so it is literally moving across the terrain oh wow by being destroyed and built at the same time (laughs) that's you could do a lot with that i'm sure you are that sounds that sounds awesome yeah and it's what it is i mean it's 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 a metaphor for it's a metaphor for what happens in society, you know, and you know if you read it, it will it will the metaphor will strike you pretty much immediately when you start reading it and everything. It's it's more about what it's like living in 
you know, living in the current system of things, living living how things are right now. And it's strange because I wrote the first draft of it in just a few days. You know, I, I can't remember. I was listening to some documentary, some something or the other and everything, and it kind of just struck me. And I just started writing it, and I finished it within a few days. You know, so that's what I'm... That's what I'm meant to be revising this evening, um, and yeah, and that's that's where I am really. That's awesome. You know, that's so, you are, are one of the people I sent "Daughters of Forgotten Light" to, uh, and I think it yes. stemmed from a conversation about the Warriors. Uh, yes. So, <laughs> uh, have you have you been influenced by anything like movies or, or uh, anything like that to where you you want to get out? Well, movies are always there. They are pretty much always in my head. I, I watch a lot of movies. I have seen a lot of movies, um, good ones and bad ones. Um, but one thing that might become very clear, I suppose, is um, for the second book and for the second Rosewater book, for the Rosewater Insurrection, people will most likely get an idea that this person likes the Day of the Triffids. Ah, no, that is one of that is one of the things that will occur to people who read it. Now, in fact, I have, I have a, sh- I have a deliberate shout out to Day of the Triffids to the, to the writer of Day of the Triffids, you know, to John Wyndham. I've got, I've got a shout out in there that only hardcore fans will get. You know, I just kind of <laughs> dropped it in there. Um, only the, only the hardcore fans will ever pick that up. Um, but for Rosewater itself, for the first book, for Rosewater, one of the influences was the Andromeda Strain. Okay. It's a it's a nineteen seventy nineteen seventy film. I think the book might have been nineteen sixty nine or nineteen sixty eight, and the film came out I think in nineteen seventy. Okay. Um, in 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 the film, the Andromeda Strain basically an ast so not an asteroid, a satellite falls back to earth and it seems to have picked up some kind of microorganism um and it's killing people so they basically this they gather scientists together and they have to find a way to stop this this organism it seems at least from the book in the book they're not extraterrestrials they are basically earthly organisms that have gone to inner space that have kind of floated out of the atmosphere into inner space and been modified by cosmic radiation and then they kind of landed on the satellite which then fell and then the organisms then spread around you know in the in the movie i don't think they were they didn't bother with that explanation they just said look the thing just came from space that's all we don't know you know they didn't bother explaining how plausible it was um and in that in in that book and in the movie, the cover story was that it was the Department of Agriculture that was trying to find out why some crops were dying. So that's why in Rosewater you'll see that the organization that is investigating things is in the Department of Agriculture building. Oh, okay. And that was uh, so, Michael sorry, Crichton that, wrote that book. Yes, it was Michael Crichton. Yes, it was Michael Crichton. You know. Um, and you know, I just really like. I really liked it. I I think I read it about twice, and I saw the movie also about twice, maybe three times. You know, so that that's one of the things that's always kind of been in my head. You know, but in terms of in terms of films, that's what that's definitely one of the ones that that influenced me in in that regard. Now, is your editor Breit Vita? 
No, my editor is, well, in America, it's Sarah Guam, and in the UK, it's Jenny, it's Jenny Hill. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, we just had Fonda Leon, who uh, her Jade City was edited by Sarah. So that's interesting. How, what was the process like on editing uh, Rosewater? It was great. I mean, like, okay, so I'm, I really love editors, but I also, you know, I do a lot of, you see, sometimes what happens is you throw away a fact. You just write something as a fact. And it's sometimes, because you said it casually, it seems like it's just something that you made up and that can't possibly be true. Most of the time when I say something, I've actually done the research and I've got the citations and I can tell you, no, this is definitely it. I just may not show my working sometimes because I'm just not like, I'm kind of, I don't want people to be bored. So if people know the origin of facts can be very boring. If I can tell you that, okay, in this manuscript and this manuscript and this manuscript and this, this monograph and so on and so forth, this person says X, that's boring. But if I just say, well, hey, X is blah then that's interesting. You right. know, and I'm not one of those people who like to, I don't like to, I don't like to be one of those people who say, who like to show the reader that, look, I have suffered for my art. No. The reader really should not care if I've done my research or not. That's not their business. They, they're here to read, they're, they're here to read a story. So I give them a story. But some of the, th- some of the things that I write in there that seem unusual and seem like made up, in fact, are not. So what is interesting to me in the editorial process is that you get challenged on some things you say, you know, and I, I, one, <laughs> I sometimes, you know, when you get your edits and everything on it, they, they come in the form of comments, right? Yes. So I, sometimes I, I remember at least on one occasion, I wrote a thousand word response <laughs> to, <laughs> you know, I really don't, I mean, like most people's resources are basically, you know, Googling things and checking Wikipedia and stuff like that, you know. Um, I distinctly remember one time, like, I got I got a note back that um, Wikipedia says something different and everything. And I, and I wrote back, I remember writing back saying, I don't care about Wikipedia. You know, <laughs> what, why, why does Wikipedia concern me? I've got, I've got books. I've got reference books in the library. I don't care about Wikipedia, you know, so... <laughs> Anybody can edit Wikipedia. Anybody can edit it. I mean, and it's not to diss Wikipedia, and it's not to say that I don't read Wikipedia. I do. But Wikipedia is often wrong. Um, and I don't mind people do using it and everything like that. But if I've spent about three hours researching something, and I've got all my citations and everything, and then somebody glances at Wikipedia and says, you know, this is this might not be correct, I kind of... Like, I have a tendency to just dump all my references into a comment. It's okay, well, go read this and read this and read this and read this and everything. I mean, it, to me, that kind of back and forth is interesting. It's not a matter, for me, it's not a matter of um, anger. It's a matter of, okay, good. We're trying to find the actual knowledge. You know, to me, and I like that. I, I like having conversations with people who have done their reading and I've done my reading. And so we just have to figure out whose is, who is, whose is the more accurate. Because, of course, there is no truth. They are just approximations of the truth. And so you get closer and closer to what you think might be the truth. You know, like you could say in mathematical terms, when they say something tends towards infinity or tends towards zero, that will never be zero, but will 
approximated. So to me, those figures, the zero and the infinity, they are things like truth. In other words, you approach them, you may never get to it because again, what is truth? It's, it can be a philosophical thing. So when I have editors, we have lots of these kind of conversations. And I try really hard not to drown people in facts, but sometimes it's in, inevitable. But largely, by and large, I think we were, you know, I, I loved working with, with Jenny and I like working with, with Sarah as well. It was, it's more like these are, you know, this, this is the process and everything. And generally speaking, when it comes to matters of story structure, um, one of the things that writers need to bear in mind is that in most cases, maybe not all, but in most cases, the editors know the audience better than you do. Yes. So you might know the story better than the editor knows the story, but in terms of the audience's ability to understand your story, I would say most of the time the editor is right, and I usually go with the editor on those kind of things. There's some things I don't even agree with, but I'll just say, okay, look, I don't agree with this because of X, Y, Z, blah, 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 but I'm going to do what you say because... You know, you're probably you know you're probably more knowledgeable about how it will be received than I am. You know, and one thing I, I I've I've read about, I've you know, read about and heard about people who get irritable with the editing process and who don't seem to want to argue with editors and all of that. And I'm like, look, they, and they they kind of point to things like, oh well, it's you know artistic integrity and all that nonsense. I'm like, look, stop. If you want to have an editor, uh, sorry, if you want to have a director's cut of your book, you can. You can own it on your hard drive. You can even print it out. You can even have it bound into an actual volume if you want to. And it will be your cut. Everything you want can be in there. You can do that, right? And then you can wake up in the morning and look at your book, which has the exact number of words that you want it to be in it. And it exists. And you can be happy with that. And then you can have the one that goes into the public. Right. You know? There's no problem with it. I don't personally see the problem. You know, the only times, and it hasn't been, it hasn't been with the editing of my book, but the only times when I have problems with editors is if they change something that I don't think I can put my name to. And that has happened to me. So when that has happened to me, usually I just say, okay, look, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, here's your money. I'm not going to, I don't want to publish the story anymore. Right. I'm not one, I'm not one of those people who want, I don't want to publish at any cost. I want whatever I have out there to be stuff that I, my name is on it, so I can be proud of it. If I can't be proud of it, then I'm pretty much not going to let it get published. And that's the, you know, that's the only time. And some, I've had some editors who've thought, for example, that it's a negotiation tactic. Like, I just want control or more money. So I'm like, no, it's not that. I don't want any more money. Actually, I don't want your money at all. You can take your money back. I just don't want this particular thing in there. And it's not that, you know, if we can't agree on it, it's fine by me. It's not something that should be a disagreement. To me, that's just we couldn't agree on what the piece should look like. Right. And to me, and, and that's, you know, that shouldn't be, for me, that should not be a thing of anger. It should just be, well, it didn't quite work out. And that's, to me, that's publishing, right? right. You negotiate. That's what art is like. You negotiate. If you can't, if you can't both agree on something, then it's fine. You know, everybody goes in peace. You know, for me, it's not, it's, it's not a matter of, oh, I'll never work with that person again. No, it's just a matter of, well, we couldn't agree on this particular piece. Right. No, don't, there's no reason to get personal about it. I, I love the editing process. It's, it's just these people tell you, hey, change this. And <laughs> if I agree with it, I do. And if I don't, then I don't. And knock on wood, I've, I've yet to have an editor fight me on anything because uh, most of their suggestions are, are valid and really easy to fix. So hopefully that doesn't happen to me. 
Yeah, no, they, I, I, like I said, most of the time they know more than you do. <laughs> right. So as, as long as it's not, if you don't think it's going to completely wreck your story, um, and especially if, it, even though it may be hard work, if you agree with it, you got to do it. I, I dissuade anybody from not working with an editor because you just are lazy and you don't want to change anything. Well, here's the thing. I mean, and that, I think that's a very good piece of writing advice there, Sean. If you, you have to be willing to throw anything out. You have, once you've written the first draft, you have to bear, you have to be able to say, right, when you read, when you read it back, if it doesn't work, I'm throwing it out. You have to be able to do that. You have to, it doesn't mean you should go around throwing things out of your work just willy nilly, but if it doesn't work, if it's not going to, if it's not going to make the fiction flower in the mind of the reader, then there's no point in being there. No matter how pretty you think it is you know um be willing to throw it out i mean like i don't know if i told you before but i i threw fifty thousand words out of um book one of rosewater wow. i just threw them away i threw them away because i started writing the, the story at the wrong point with the wrong point of view so at the wrong point in the history of the book and with the wrong point of view so once i got to about fifty thousand words i kind of realized hang on hang on hang on this isn't going to work this narrative path isn't going to work because of blah 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 um and i think that i was i was angry with myself for about an hour and then i just started again chapter one boom (laughs) (laughs) and you know you did lay some groundwork um it's not a lost opportunity i think that's what a lot of people are are worried about is if you cut that much you, you just well why did i even start to begin with well because you were learning your story um and yeah. It sucks yeah. when it happens, but, you know, suck it up and keep going. You learn something. I can't tell you how many countless yeah. short stories I've written that have never been published anywhere. Well, yes. And, you know, like, okay, so one of one of my one of my idols in the field is Octavia Butler. Yes. And after the sale, I think, of her first story. It may have been, I think, I don't have the exact figures. It may have been a decade before she sold anything again. Wow. You know, it may have been a whole decade. That's now, crazy. imagine the kind of woman. She was still writing throughout that decade, okay? Right. And she, and she was take, she was working menial jobs and stuff, but she was still writing. So, like, you know, I think of all of this. And we have access to her papers now, all right, To And she was writing in her journal throughout this time so you can imagine how heartbreaking it must have been for her for someone who one she was determined that no that her calling is to be a writer that is what she has to do and she can't she came from a family of people who you know largely did things like nursing her father was dead but her mother was a nurse a lot of nurses in their family you know so there were people that you know you get a job you make yourself useful right and she was there telling them that she was going to be a writer you know so um it was 10 years between the first and the, and the next sale. So, you know, when I think of myself, I'm just like, nah, 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 nah. This is not, you have nothing. You know, the fact that you're just losing 50,000 words, it's nothing. People have been, <laughs> you know, <laughs> people have been through much worse. Okay. So, um, I, I have learned not to be precious about the material. Very good. What are you, what books are you reading uh, at the moment? All right. So right now, I'm reading a book called um, Less by Andrew Sean Greer, your namesake. Um, oh, wow. Less, 
I think it won the Pulitzer Prize or something like that. Um, and it's it's a it's a story about a guy who who is a writer himself, but is only well known because of a relationship he had with another writer. Um, and so he's invited to different. You know, he's invited to Congress, to conferences, and the like, to come and talk about his relationship with the other writer, not his own writing, um, and his his former his former boyfriend is about to get married, and so in order to avoid going to the wedding, he goes on a round the world trip, but he can't afford a round the world trip, so he has to he has to go to writers' conferences all around the world. You know, so that's what the book is about. It's so well written. It's so rich. That you know, it's unimaginable. The other book I'm also reading right now is basically a um, a collection of short stories by Priya Sharma. Okay. Are you do, do you know do you know Priya Sharma's work? I do not. I've heard her name before. I've heard the name before. Yeah, she's a, she's a short story writer. She's um, you know she, she works in the UK and everything, and her, her writing is just amazing. So I'm reading a collection of her short stories, um, and because again, I'm just not one of these people who can I, I can't read a single work. Um, I'm reading K Punk by Michael Fisher. Oh, okay, yeah, yes, reading that as well. So those are those are the main three things I'm reading, and of course, Interzone, the magazine Interzone just arrived today. Because <laughs> I, I subscribe to Interzone, and I'm reading the short stories in that as well. Awesome. Do you, do you find yourself? I mean, like most authors, I'm sure you you read in all kinds of different genres. But do you find yourself reading more outside of the genre you write, or is it just a big mixed bag for you? Okay, so it, it depends. All right, so I should tell you, I'm very, I'm omnivorous. I read pretty much anything at all. Like I read all the time like when i am not actively doing something i am reading you know and every all the times in between if i'm waiting for anything i'm reading i've got stuff in my car if i you know if i pull up somewhere if anybody's shopping i'm reading i don't you know i don't waste any of the in between times and that's actually how i get all of my reading done um if i am writing a particular genre or a particular subject. So, for example, let's say I was right. If I was writing space opera, right, mm-hmm. I would not read anything. I don't read anything to do with space operas at all. That's a good. And I, you know, yeah. I don't want to be influenced by it at all. What I what I do read though, if I'm writing space opera, is I read nonfiction about the International Space Station, about space flight, about the history of space flight, and all of that. So I read nonfiction about what I'm writing, but. I don't read the fiction that is any if it is anywhere related to what I'm writing and I don't read it at all because I don't want to be influenced by it. I do the so same that's, thing. That's that's a good that's a good point. Um, I do listen to movie soundtracks while I write just to kind of get myself in the mode, but I don't read anything that's uh, too similar. It's at least fiction, like you mentioned. Um, I do it afterward or before, but never yeah. during. No, no, I don't read during. I mean. Oh God! There was something. I'm trying to remember something that happened to me recently. Um, God Almighty! I'm just trying to remember. It's kind of scary. Okay, yeah. So um, when I finished writing book three of Rosewater, I then started watching the television program Travelers. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'd never seen it before that. 
then so while i was watching it i was so happy that i didn't um i was so happy that i didn't watch it while i was writing the book because there were some similarities you know there were some similarities that i noticed just thematic similarities you know nothing nothing major but thematic similarities so i'm really happy that i didn't watch that while i was writing it um and you know those things can happen so i just i make sure that i'm not reading what i'm writing you know but otherwise i read pretty much everything else at the same time i think part of my problem is that i can sometimes get bored so i i can flit from one thing to the next to the next to the next or read short stories i really like short stories probably satisfy my you know my need to jump from thing to thing to thing right because you can just you know i usually have several collections on the go at the same time so if i want to change styles writing styles that's you can easily do that with short stories if you want to change subject matter you can do that quite easily with short stories as well you know so i wish i could read more short stories and i know that's one thing it's i i think i would be better at writing short stories if i read more short stories um but it's it's tough to find a good book or a good novel or a good novel novella but it's even tougher to find a real good short story at least for me um because well, I, okay, I, can, I can give you i can give you some definite recommendations in that area right? absolutely yeah give me some i mean okay so two of my favorite short story writers who i would definitely recommend that you buy any of their collections one of them is kelly link okay right you can pretty much read anything that kelly link has written anything so if you, if you find any of her collections like magic for beginners you know um or get in trouble you will you know you will enjoy those um the other person that i really like her stories is laurie moore uh, but she writes she writes general fiction not um, not genre okay. but her stories are really great you know so you you know you could think of that then obviously You've got people like Raymond Carver. You've got Priya Sharma, like I just told you. Because after, you know, um, Priya Sharma is is excellent. You know, her style, the horror <laughs> in her stories, the imagination is just, it's just, it's really amazing. You know? Oh, yeah. So, so rather, so what I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that rather than going for anthologies, it's probably better to go for single author collections because you can, you can probably... And I say this, you know, I say this with, with care because people's tastes, you know, can be different and everything. But you can probably be sure of the quality of each story if you have a single author collection. If you know that you have an author that you like who has written short stories right. that you like, then it probably works out that way. I mean, Neil Gaiman's short, you know, Fragile Things. Mm -hmm. Neil Gaiman's Fragile Things. Yeah, those are good. There are lots of really good stories in that collection as well. Um even you know pretty much I, I pretty much enjoy most of neil gaiman's short story collections i pretty much do um not everything you know not all of the stories in there but most of them I, i'm pretty i'm usually happy with when i read them what you are know, so, some what are some writer goals uh, for your career that you don't mind sharing with us <laughs> <laughs> complete complete and utter world domination <laughs> <laughs> you're you're getting there tade you're getting there <laughs> Every uh, time okay. I turn around and I see a new list for best of, and you're on it, and I'm not, and I go, hey, there you go. <laughs> All right. So, okay, so seriously, though, um, I think for me, I guess, you know, the goals are on several, they're, they're probably on several different tracks. So the, my first goal has, my first writing goal has always been, 
I supposed to have the respect of my peers, and by my peers I mean my my genre peers, my fellow writers and readers, my fans, as in the fans of science fiction and fantasy, you know, horror and everything. It's it you know rather, and I'm sure my editor and my agents are going to be really pissed off with me for saying this, but actually I just want the fans and my you know and my fellow writers to like it more than I want sales. <laughs> I know I should be wanting sales. <laughs> I should be wanting sales. I get that, but actually, what I really, what I, what I, what really gives me any kind of satisfaction is, you know, people that like science fiction, people that I've come up with who I know like science fiction. I would like them to like it. I, I don't want them to think, oh, you know, this is just, ugh, this is just mediocre or something like that. I, you know, I want, I want to because I try to give everything I do a hundred percent. I want it to be. I want it to be appreciated, I guess. And, and I, I suppose that's the way it is for everybody. But, you know, primarily my the, the very first thing I want, the very first thing that I find rewarding is if people in genre like what I've written. That's really what I, that's really what I want. In, in particular, I mean, I've got, I've got a writing group, you know, I've got a bunch of people who are, who are in my writing group and everything. And, you know, every time when I finish something, I'm like, oh, are they going to like this? Or are they going to hate it? Right usually that's that's usually what's on my mind like uh are people just gonna say oh this is this is really turgid this is slow what's wrong with you you know that kind of thing that's so that, <laughs> so that is that is the first thing that's that's the first thing on my mind now to the extent that having good sales helps you to continue to write i want sales for from that perspective in other words like yeah, you get a publisher. If a publisher thinks they can sell your stuff, you know, and I do, because I do want to continue to be a voice in the genre. Then I, I you know, I want that. I really want that to happen. Um, I, I guess if you know, in ten years' time, ten, fifteen years' time, what I would like is for you know to have written something that that stays and that people remember. All right, more like something like becomes i suppose a language in of itself so today for example i found out that they've cast baron harkonnen right in dune and the fact that that can be a news item that you know that somebody and that people can recognize who baron harkonnen is from a science fiction book to me that's one of the things i would like like i would like for a character you know that i've written that has come from my imagination to be so recognizable that it becomes a thing that people can talk about and not have to explain. Right. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, it's just a household name. Yes, it's a household name, yes. Uh, you know, I would I would like to become part of the lexicon in some way. You know, I'd like something that I came up with to be part of the lexicon. And I think that would make me feel satisfied, I believe. I would I would feel satisfied at that point. You know, I'd feel like, okay, yes that i i think i have made some kind of dent you know in that way so in the same way that you could say winter is coming and you everybody knows where that's you know where that's come from right and they immediately uh, picture either the the show or the book or the author yes or the other exactly uh, i think that those are the kind of things that i tend to have in mind uh, on a on a very on a very day-to-day -day level because my, you know, those are more like long-term 
blue sky thinking type things. But on a day-to-day level, what I really want is I want to be able to finish my writing for the day with something that has impact and clarity. So in other words, one, I wanted to hit people like a punch in the gonads. Right. At the same time, to be very clear so for people to understand exactly what it is I'm trying to say. And that's not always, it's not always possible because a lot of, a lot of what we write about in, you know, in, in fantastical fiction, a lot of it is, is metaphorical, even if it doesn't seem to be metaphorical, but these are symbols and metaphors for real life. And what I want is for one, it, you know, for the, you know, for the, for the situations themselves to hit people, for it to be entertaining, but for, for there to be enough clarity that they realize what it means, like what I'm trying to talk about, what it means. Um, I was today, I was contacted by someone, by a student um, who is writing some kind of term paper on Rosewater, which I, which honestly made me feel very gratified. I felt like, okay, I've thought of something and you're actually writing a paper on it. Right. That's, to me, that, that is, that is so rewarding. You know, it, it's really, you know, it's, it, it's so rewarding. And so, you know, he was contacting me just to clarify a few things. He had, I think, about 20 or 25 questions. And um, he said, you don't have to worry. Uh, sorry, you don't have to hurry up. Just, you know, in your own time, please. Uh, you know, but please get it back to me before June and everything. I did that stuff in an hour, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's very flattering like, when you when stuff like that happens. It's crazy. You know, I've gotten emails from people from Hungary asking for a, a sticker or whatever, and just people contacting me out of the blue. It's 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 very gratifying. Well, yeah, did I think that you you pretty much single-handedly changed the view of firefighters <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah i think all of a sudden you made firefighters cool in genre so um and it, you know it it, it it is um how do i put it it's it's very it's it's very visual as well and you know so yeah i'm not i'm not surprised at that have you read smoke you know, i have yes i have oh wow really liked it. well thank you yeah. i knew you re- read yeah, daughters uh, obviously, yeah. Daughters is very different. It's very divisive, Tade. I don't know if you could tell, but if you look at the Amazon reviews, there are no three-star reviews. None. Yes, extremes. Very extreme, which I knew well, yeah, when I wrote it. But, yeah, but, but that's good because it means that one way or the other, it has affected people in a very strong way. You know, and to be honest, I would I would really prefer that. I would really prefer that people either really, really like something or actually really hate it. Because if someone hates something, if it, if it affects them strongly enough that they hate it, then you've you have done your job as a writer. Yeah. Because the worst thing ever is to write something that people are indifferent to. Yes, very true. It's the worst thing. So if someone hates it strong enough to write a review, say, "Dude, I really hate this thing. I wanted to take the author out back and shoot him in the head." <laughs> then <laughs> all the reviews. <laughs> All the reviews. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, finish. Finish. I was just going to say all the reviews for daughters uh, mention the word violent in the good ones and the bad ones. But then I'm talking to uh, Caitlin Starling, who has a book coming out of uh, The Luminous Dead. And uh, she was saying this like, yeah, it was really violent and gory. And uh, I just finished reading The Poppy War. And we'd talked about that. And I said, well, is it as gory as The Poppy War? And she said, oh, no, that's it's not. So. Th- <laughs> I can't even win that. Uh, the perpetrators of the violence—that's what it is. Yes, it's it's 
it's the perpetrators of it. So with the poppy war, at least, you know, it is the expected purveyors of violence who do it. So in a sense, with poppy war, it's, yes, it's, you know, it is the one of the most grimdark of grimdark aspects to that book, you know, the violence and everything. But in a, in a way that is somehow that kind of oppression thing is sort of expected, right? But with daughters... <laughs> <laughs> go on uh, <laughs> it is pretty it is pretty violent it just so happens it so happens that i actually like violence so you know for me for me i'm like yes yes more 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 um but i can see how be, and especially if it's, if it's violence from and by groups that are not traditionally associated with violence you know like women yeah you know you know that people traditionally don't associate with violence and well when i say traditional it should be traditionally in fiction because people who don't think women can be violent really are not living in in the real worlds right living in the real world um if you if you spend any time looking at what happens in women only institutions or girl only institutions then you will You'll see, thi- you, you'll see things that will change your entire idea of violence. One of the things, some, some of the theories that I've heard about before, for example, are that because boys, society allows boys to fight normally. So you can fight from when you're a kid. So if you're a boy fighting, you know, you're a boy fighting another boy as a kid, you know, you will be stopped and you might be punished for it, but it's almost a punch in. It's almost a knock, you know, a nudge, nudge, wink, wink kind of. Yeah, boys punch. will be boys kind of thing. So they allow you to fight. If a girl fights, they will be, you know, you know, they will just basically come down on the girl. Like, no, you can't be like that. It's not ladylike or something like that. Right. Now, what some people have theorized is that because boys know, you know, boys fight, they fight more often and they're allowed to, the society allows them to fight a lot more often. They have learned certain submission signals so they've learned when not to fight so the older you get the more you realize that look fighting is costly all right if you fight you can get hurt the other person can get hurt teeth can get broken and so on and so forth so they learn boys learn submission signals that allow them to to you know that that avoid losing face right um but when you get really aggressive women that sometimes they don't know these signals because they haven't been allowed to fight. So if you put them in an environment like an institution where they are all of a sudden allowed to fight, they can be a lot more violent than, than boys and men can be. Yes. You know, they can be a lot more violent, you know, so, you know, women's prisons, you know, things like that. If you look at it, you know, things can happen. And in fact, there's a, there's a comic called bitch planet. That, I use that as a comparison for daughters. Yes. <laughs> yeah you know uh, definitely people should read bitch planet by the way i have you know i have no links to it i don't know any of the writers or artists or anything like that kelly sue deconic and uh delandro is the uh artist yeah people should read bitch planet it's it's a it's, a very, it's, it's awesome a good it's fantastic yeah. and it's the same I, I didn't even know about it uh, michael underwood who has been such a help to my career uh while when I just finished Daughters years ago, I want to say 2015, 16, uh, he came out and shared uh, a picture of Bitch Planet, which I'd never heard of. And I said, oh my God, this is exactly what I wrote. <laughs> so it all worked out. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Um, Tade, we're going to wrap things. Go ahead. 
So one thing, did you not feel, oh, it's a good thing I didn't read this while I was writing my book? Yes, just like you said. Yes, it's a good thing I didn't read. That way, you know, because I, I, some people, like, they, they talk, uh, the guys at the firehouse, my captain particularly, likes to talk shit about smoke eaters uh, playfully, because I, I don't know if he's read it, but uh, he's like, oh, that's just like rain of fire. And <laughs> Yes, a little bit. There are comparisons. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't want people to say, "Oh, you just got this from bitch planning." Because I, I, I like uh, being able to say, "No, I, I only found out about it after the fact." Uh, when I told my yeah. agent I was writing a robot detective noir, he's like, "Okay, you do know Ailey Martinez and Adam Christopher wrote robot detective books too, right?" <laughs> Which he edited, <laughs> by the way, when he was at tour. And I was like, "Oh, well, it's it'll be different. It'll be completely different." Yeah, I mean, books can books can have the same tagline and be completely different. Uh, like, um, so there's this book Ragnarok by A.S. Bayat. Okay, I haven't heard of that I think one. It's, anyway, there's a book called Ragnarok by her, and there's a book called The Gospel of Loki, which I think is by Joan Harris. Um, and the two books pretty much have the same tagline. It's about Norse mythology, basically, but they're very different books. You know, it's about it's about Loki and you know the death of the Norse gods and everything like that. But the books are really very different, but they pretty much have the same tagline. So it doesn't, you know, that doesn't it doesn't take away from the uniqueness of the book that you might be writing. Right, and people who read one will more than likely like the other, but get enough difference that it doesn't exactly. create it's boring. Zero sum game. Right. Tade, where can uh, people find you and, and buy your work? So you can buy my work pretty much everywhere where they sell books. Um, you know, so all the Barnes and Nobles, the the Amazons, Care, Waterstones. In fact, a friend took a picture of the Barnes and Noble in New York, or in in, um, in the Central Station. I've forgotten where it is. You know, so people have actually been sending me lots of photographs of the of the book in the wild. Oh, don't you from love that? Many different <laughs> I love it. I, I love that. You know, yeah. so um, so I get so I say, well, look, we've got the book of the week here, and it's Rosewater. Yay! You know, so people send me tons of photographs, which I read. I love every single one of them. You know, I love every single one of those photos that I get. Um, so anywhere where they sell books, it is there. Um, and as, as for finding me, I'm pretty much only on Twitter and Facebook. Facebook is more of a friends only thing, but. My main presence, my main web presence is with Twitter. I don't have anything else. I used to have a blog, you know, on WordPress, but I realized that it was just too much work. Yes. It was just too much work. It was, was, pulling, was pulling time that I could be spending writing, you know, and I just felt, well, no, it's, this is a bit too much. So I'm on Twitter. I pretty much follow anybody back. I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not snobbish about it. Um, if anybody acts like a dick, I block them immediately because I don't, I, I don't have time to get into arguments with people on Twitter. Right. That's just not a, that's not a thing that is going to happen. I usually just as soon as I notice someone is acting like an idiot, I just block them. I don't, you know, we don't have to interact. Is that's the way I see things. We don't have to interact. Right. You know, but for people for people who want to just hang out as usual, as normal, and want to talk about genre things, because I do. As you can imagine, I have very strong opinions about things to do with genre and things to do with race and writing and everything. And I'm not shy with my opinions. Um, so I will, you know, and I, you know, things that I'm excited about, I will talk about them. You know, things like um, Into the Spider-Verse, 
Oh, which I love that me, movie. Mm-hmm. That to me, that was probably the best superhero movie I have ever seen. Um, I, I, I I've been reading Spider-Man since I was about five, and this this was the first dramatization that I was a hundred percent satisfied with. There, there is nothing in that film that I did not like. Well, okay, maybe there's one or two things, but you, nothing is nothing is perfect, I suppose. <laughs> but, in ter- <laughs> but in terms of the adaptation, it, it, you know, I, I think that the only thing I didn't like, I didn't really like the vision of the kingpin as much. Yeah, he just, he, I have a t- he was like this huge giant boulder with a face. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but I get I what they were trying to do it was impressionistic. It wasn't, I don't think it was meant to be this hyper real depiction of him. And I understand that. It's what, you know, what's his face used to do that. Um, Frank Miller used to do that in the pages of Daredevil. He would write him as large, you know, he would draw him as larger than life, you know, so you would get just the black of his suit and then the white of his shirt and then his cigarette, the smoke of his cigarette and his dome. And that's it. And I get, I get that. I understand why, why someone would do that um it, it's just that it didn't seem to work with everything else and I, I and i can also understand why they would want to visually distinguish him from all the other characters in the film so i get why they did it um but it just wasn't it didn't quite click with me i totally loved dr octopus though yes that was a surprise to me even and i was like oh whoa <laughs> yeah exactly. i love that yeah, but another thing, I mean, there were so many little touches as well, but one of the things about this Dr. Octopus's arms is that they used a design that you get in current serpentine robots. Yes. You know, um, because it was one of the things, I had to research serpentine robots for Rosewater for book three. Um, so I, I read what the latest kind of technology is on serpentine robots. And those arms, you know, they're, Pretty much exactly like that. So that's why they can collapse and not be seen because they've got, um, they have air bladders, you know, so you can, you can collapse them into themselves. They, you know, like, you know, they can, they can have accordion, they can have an accordion type effect and then they can stretch out. You know, it's just, it's, it's amazing. You know, so when I saw that, I was like, okay, they've done their homework. Right. <laughs> they, they've done their homework before. So it's not just a visual thing. They've done their, you know, they've looked into the science of it, the technology of it. So I was, I was, you know, I was really impressed. And I love the fact that Aunt May knew her. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember what she said? She said, oh, she said, um, you know, when, when Spider-Man, I said, okay, don't tell me. Your friends call you Doc Ock. And then she said, no, my friends call me Leslie. Mm-hmm. So when Aunt May, when she came to Aunt May's house, sorry, spoilers, spoilers. If you haven't seen it, spoilers, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> when she came to Aunt May's house, Aunt May just said, oh, great. It's Leslie. <laughs> That's very, very clever writing and, and a good Easter egg that many it people is, wouldn't it, catch. Yeah. And it, you know, because, okay, a lot of, except for Spider-Man nerds like me, a lot of people don't realize that Dr. Octopus was married to um, Aunt May. Back in the seventies, they were married. Wow, I I thought I knew everything about Spider Man, and I did not know that. Oh, they got married. There was a time. There was a time Spider Man went off somewhere, 
uh, either he was missing for a while. So um, Otto Octavius, who was who's Doctor Octopus, somehow went to uh, went to Aunt May's house and befriended her. They became friends, and then they got they got married. They actually did get married. That's crazy. You know, that's they, yeah, lots, look, look, it was the seventies. Okay, everybody was stoned. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know um, so yeah. There's just so much. I mean, I think I think one of my favorite things in the whole in the whole film was was um, Spider Gwen. Yes, Spider Gwen you know, was I, done very you know, like well. And, and they've green. I think they've greenlit a Spider Gwen film now, which you know I'm, I'm really I'm really happy about. It, you know, so yeah. My my kids uh, really enjoyed it, and my son, my five year old, is all about Miles Morales now, and we I picked up the uh, Saladin. Uh, I'm gonna mess his name up. Is it Ahmed? Yes, Ahmed. Yes, uh, you mean he, Black, Bolt, Black Bolt, and I think he's doing Misfits now. Something. Yeah, but he's he he was uh, writing the new Miles Morales Spider Man series. Yep. Good. And yeah. Th- I got the first one for my son, and he he's he has he's learning to read, and he did it all by himself. He read Miles Morales on the front, and I said, "Wow, this is, you know, comics can change the world, no matter what anybody else says." Have I not told you the story of how I started reading? Was it through it comics? Was- Yes, it was a Fantastic Four. Oh. The first reading I ever did was a Fantastic Four comic. That was a very first, it was a very first, apparently I wasn't even interested in reading until I saw that comic. I told my mom, look, I want this and I want, you know, you need to read it to me. My mom said, nope, you're gonna, if you want to read this, you're going to have to learn how to read. And that's how I started reading, seriously. Oh, that was a good move on, on the parents' <laughs> part. <laughs> Tade, we thank you so much for coming on Cosmic Dragon. Uh, this has been episode 25. To recap, to let listeners know, uh, you have Rosewater out. Uh, the sequel to that's coming. Um, the Murders of Molly Southbourne is out. The sequel's coming to that. And whole lots of stuff uh, from you. And thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I really love my time here. Thanks, Sean.